Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Morning, church. I was in the spirit. I almost forgot that I was supposed to read the Bible. Um, our Bible reading will be taken from about six passages. Um, when I'm done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with. Thank you very much. Um, our Bible reading will be taken from Second Samuel 11, from verse 1 to 5, from verse 14 to 15. From verse 26 to 27, 1 Kings chapter 1 from verse 5 to 10, verse 15 to 21, and Matthew 1 verse 1 to 6. I begin. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah, and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw him so he will be struck down. Withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But it the thing David did, had done displeased the Lord. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeriah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Rai, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fatting calves at the stone of Zoleth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room, where Abishag the Shunammite was attending to him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the lord your god. 
Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves, and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my father, the king, after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord, the king, is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, Zerah, whose mother, Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, who had been Uriah's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Um, it's not lost on me that this is the last Sunday of the year. But even more than that, um, it's Christmas Day. And for many of us who can sort of think about, I don't know how your year went and how things sort of turned out for you. Maybe for some of us, it's been a topsy-turvy year. Maybe for others of us, it's been a great year, right? Um, I think of the last time Christmas was on a Sunday, it was 2016. City Church wasn't even, hadn't even launched like this. And yet God has been kind to us. I do want us to take just a few minutes, um, continuing in that same spirit that we had during the song for the word and just thanking God. I want you to um, just close your eyes and thank God for his kindness. Thank God that we have the gift of Jesus. Thank God that we are not people without hope. That God has been gracious to us to give us, like Sharon was praying, not just symbols of his own kindness, but himself, the greatest gift of all, that you and I can now say that we are God's children. Is anyone worthy is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, sing church, has conquered the grave. He's David's roots and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Blessing and honor and glory is he worthy of this? He is. 
God Almighty reigns. For 10 seconds, can you just lift up your voice this morning and say, thank you, Lord, that I get to be part of what you're doing in the world, that I get to be spared, that I get to be a recipient of your kindness, of your goodness, that I get to be one who partakes in the life, the birth of Jesus and all that God has freely given to us as a result. Thank you, Lord. You are worthy. That's our song this morning, Lord. Father, we just come as a church this morning and lift up our hearts and our voices to you this morning. Lord, we are thankful that you have not just given us life and breath and health and friends and family and, and food and all these gifts that you have given us, but Lord, you have given us your very self. Lord, we worship you this morning. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for hope in darkness. Thank you, Lord, for light, oh God, that pulls us out of our shame and ignominy. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.
please have your seats. Merry Christmas, everyone. Can you turn to someone beside you and just say Merry Christmas? So I'm, I'm aware that people don't come to... Um, so there's a similarity between Christmas day services and um, weddings, right? People don't come to... People don't go for weddings to hear the, the pastor preach, right? They go for weddings to see, you know, what's happening. And then hopefully they'll get some food as a result afterwards. Um, and maybe some of you actually, you, you're, not here to, <laughs> you're not here to hear me or anybody, you know, to hear something. You just want to get through the day and worship God. Now let's go and party. Right? <laughs> there are a number of people like that. But I'm hoping that this morning, in the, in the time that we have, no matter how short or long it is, that we get to remind ourselves, I've, I've warned you, I've warned you. <laughs> that we get to remind ourselves of the significance of the birth of the life of Jesus Christ and all that that represents. And so I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about Christmas. I don't know what you think about. Maybe you think about shopping, new clothes, um, Christmas clothes like me, right? People are laughing like, Mano doesn't usually wear suits, but it's Christmas, so I can wear Christmas clothes today. Um, maybe you think about friends, family. Maybe you think about spending money. That's the one that has been on my mind these last couple of days, right? Particularly not just because of Christmas and end of the year, but because my two kids are born in December and January. And both of them are celebrating landmark birthdays within a month of each other. So the younger one was one, right, in, in December a couple of weeks ago. The older one will be five um, in a couple of weeks, and he's been telling us how he wants his birthday party to go. And I've been telling everybody who cares to listen, see, whatever you decide to do, if you want to give birth, make sure it is not December or January, because everything just skyrockets from that. But maybe all of those things are what's on your mind. Let me tell you something that is not usually on our mind. Family trees, ancestry, genealogy. We don't usually think about that. And yet when Matthew wants to begin to talk about the Christmas story and how God has unveiled his plan of the gospel in the world, he chooses to do so by beginning with a genealogy, genealogy of Jesus, the record of Jesus' ancestors. And you see that in Matthew chapter 1, all the way from verses 1 to 18. But he does something very, a bit strange. As he's sort of writing the genealogy of Jesus, he inserts five women in the, in the story. Um, Ruth, sorry, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Mary. The familiar with the story of the Bible, the one about Mary makes sense because Mary is the mother of Jesus, and so it makes sense that she's somehow in the story. But the other four, who are they? Who, what do we know about them? Why, why should we even care? And to even make matters worse, or to sort of complicate things, is that what Matthew does in that passage is really radical for the times he was living in. When people wrote ancestries or wrote the stories of how they sort of came about, how life came about. People didn't insert women. And so Matthew is pointing to something about these women and their role in the significance of the unfolding story of the gospel or what we call the story behind the Christmas story. And so what we've done the last couple of weeks ending today is looking at three of those women. We've looked at Ruth, Pastor Femme looked at Ruth two Sundays ago, um, Tommy showed us Tama last week, and now today we look at Bathsheba. 
And so you can sort of think about the sermon series as a double-decker sandwich, right? If anybody eats that, right? With, with three sort of layers of bread and the fillings in between. And what we've been hoping God would do through this series is just open our eyes to see how he works through ordinary people, through often overlooked people, to fulfill his purposes and to accomplish his counsel. And so today we're looking at Bathsheba's story. And Bathsheba's story is really found in two sections, if you notice during the reading. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 11 to 12 and 1 Kings chapters 1 to 2. But actually, even before we get to the story of Bathsheba, the story had actually begun even before that. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, what's happened is that David has been crowned king in chapter 5. And now everything is going well for him and he... He gets to this point where he's like, this is not right. I have a house. Everything is great. My kingdom is is being built. But God's temple is not befitting. God's ark lives in a tent. How can this be right? And so he wants to correct course and he wants to build God a house. And God sends him a word and says basically, thanks but no thanks, David. You're not going to build me a house. I am going to build you a house. And God says these words to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 11 to 13. He says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And in verse 13, he says, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And what you see there is that God is really concerned as the story is progressing along. The question is, how does the kingdom of David get established? That's the question that we're going to be seeing as we read through Second Samuel, as we read the story of David, but particularly as we also consider the life of Bathsheba. What role does Bathsheba play in the establishment of God's kingdom? And so I've called this sermon Postcards from an Unfailing Kingdom because what we're really doing is looking at, if you like, taking a 30,000 feet and looking at these two pictures of the life of Bathsheba as postcards for where God might be pointing us to and what God wants to do um, in our lives today. And I pray that God would help us this morning to see that beautifully and to sort of follow along and marvel again at the beauty of Jesus in Jesus' name. And so the first postcard we see is a postcard of shame. A postcard of shame. And we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you were reading as Ojodale was reading, he says that things had basically, from chapter 10, things were going well for David. And we come to verse 11, there's war going on. And David decides, instead of going to fight, he's going to stay at home. He's going to just, you know, chill. Let the boys do the thing. You know, I've trained them, I've deployed them. Let them do their own thing. And we see that actually from this point on, everything begins to go south. And what the passage is telling us, which is not what we're going to focus on today, but I think it might be helpful for someone as you begin to think about next year and how you want to position your life and the things you want to do better, is how you spend your time deeply matters. When David is meant to go to the battlefront, he decides, no, he's not going to go to the battlefront. He's going to stay at home. And of course, like they say, an idol... um, and I do man is the devil's workshop, the devil's toolbox, basically. And so David decides he's going to take a peek around, you know, his, his palace and be walking around. And he cites this woman who, from the roof of his palace, he cites a woman taking a bath. And he says, hey, 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 who is this person? 
And we're told in verse 3 that when he asks, this is the answer that he comes back with. It says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What the passage wants us to see is that this is a deeply significant fact. If this was somebody that David didn't know, Eliam just said, oh, she's, you know, somebody, or she's a woman. But the passage tells us who her father is and who her husband is, meaning that David knew these people. And as you read the story of the Bible along in 2 Samuel, you see that David actually knew these people. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, both the names of her husband and her father were mentioned as part of David's soldiers. So David knew this person. In fact, um, her, her father was sort of like a contemporary of David, and her grandfather, um, Ahithophel, was one of David's chief advisors. And so basically, at the very least, if Bathsheba was saying to David, you are like a father to me, she wasn't father zoning him. It was the truth. David was like a father to Bathsheba. And yet David hears all of these things and he doesn't really care about them and he still goes and he takes her and he sleeps with her. Somebody who should be protecting her takes advantage of her. And the passage wants us to see that that is a deeply significant fact because all through as we read the story, the only time we hear Bathsheba's voice in that passage is in verse 5 where she says, I am pregnant. It is as though the narrator is telling us that this woman is so suppressed in this story that the only thing she is good for in the eyes of this man is the sexual pleasure that he gets from her. She's repressed. And maybe if you're familiar with the story, if you're, maybe you have a Christian background or you're somebody who likes to balance things out, you're saying, yeah, David messed up, but why is this woman also bathing on the roof? Why is this woman also helping David to sin? Why did she do the things she did? If, if she hadn't positioned herself in the place where she was positioned, maybe David wouldn't have fallen this way and done this thing. But you see, the passage actually won't allow us to have that opinion. Because over and over again, the narrator wants us to see a couple of things. First one is that David is the one on the roof. She is not the one on the roof. If you look at verse 3, that's what it says. David is the one who is looking on the roof. In verse 2, sorry. David is the one who is looking on the roof. She is not the one on the roof. Secondly, it says in verse 4 that she had been purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. This tells us that this was somebody who was keeping the law of God, somebody who was at least to a certain extent devout. And David, contrary to the law of God, goes ahead because at the time the law had said that somebody who was cleaning themselves from their periodic uncleanness was meant to be taken care of in a certain place, different from where other people were gathered. And David says, no, 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 I'm going to disregard all of God's commands and go after that person. We know she was married and she was staying at home waiting for her husband, JJ. And so the passage won't allow us to say, oh, Bathsheba was sort of at fault in this scenario. No, no. The passage tells us basically that everything was laid at David's door. David was the one squarely at fault. It was as though Bathsheba was in a house sitting down carefully. 
minding her own business. And a truckload of wahala comes and jams her in her house and changes the course of her life forever. And so this woman who was a woman who was beautiful and full of pride and joy becomes a woman who becomes an epitome of shame. And maybe some of us, we are familiar with Bathsheba's story. We're familiar with Bathsheba's story in that the people who are meant to have protected us are people who have taken advantage of us. You see, you were minding your own business and doing things, and you, you really didn't want to offend anybody or go against the grain. You were just doing your own thing, and it seems like despite all of those things that you were doing, Wahala comes and jams you in your house, and it changes the trajectory of your life. Maybe some of us, it is even like Bathsheba in that we have been sexually assaulted. Maybe it was somebody you were in a relationship with. Maybe it was somebody you weren't even in a relationship with. And yet it was that people took advantage of you. The good news, friends, is that not just that Bathsheba identifies with that. It is that God himself identifies with that. And that's why we see this story told here. Of all places in the genealogy of Jesus. One of my favorite, um, at the moment, my current favorite Christmas hymn is a Christmas carol. It's called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It says, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel Then mourns in lonely exile here Until the Son of God appear Rejoice, rejoice Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. He says that those who were captive were mourning. And like Bathsheba, many of us are mourning. We can identify with but you see, the way mourning turns into joy is with the appearance of Emmanuel. It's with the appearance of the Son. And so as you read the story along, we get to chapter 11 is over. We get to chapter 12. Chapter 11 is over. Her husband dies. Chapter 12. Now David has rightfully married Bathsheba, and now she's in his house, and she's pregnant. And you think, oh, well, so maybe their life is sort of going to get back to normal at this time, but the child falls sick. God judges the child. The child falls sick. And it's like, God, why? This woman has gone through a lot. Why don't you just spare this child and allow this child to live? And it's as though God is saying the judgment that was meant for David, the judgment that was meant for Bathsheba's sins, and the shame that should have been Bathsheba's as a result of what she had gone through was going to be visited on this child. Because you see, as long as that child was alive, when people saw that child, they would say, oh, this is the child of David and the child of Bathsheba that was the product of a shameful act. 
And God says, no, 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 I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm going to judge that child in place of judging you, David, in place of allowing you, Bathsheba, to continue to live with the shame that you have been carrying. And you're saying, God, that is so unfair. Why would you allow this child to bear the burden and the shame of these people? And God is saying, don't you see, that is the Christmas story. That there was one child who didn't have anything wrong with him, who didn't do anything wrong in all of his life, who lived a perfect life, and yet this child was born to die. Died for those who sinned against others like David, but also died for those who have borne shame all of their lives. And God is saying, no, you don't have to bear the shame anymore. This child will bear the shame all the way. You see, sometimes we say things like... Um, the cross redeems our shame. That's the death of Christ redeems our shame. And that is very true. I don't want to pit the um, death of Christ against the incarnation or the birth of Jesus. But you see, if the cross makes redemption accessible, the birth of Christ makes redemption possible. If the cross makes redemption accessible, the birth of Christ makes redemption possible. That is, you and I who have dealt with shame all of our lives can now become people who no longer have to deal with shame because another child has borne that shame on our behalf. And so when Jesus was born, Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, the angel appeared to David and he says that, this child is going to save people from their sins. In other words, the sole purpose of the life of this baby is to be born so that he could die. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 that we all read and love to hear. For those of us who are Christians, it says, it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And it says all these things, but don't you see, Verse 1 to 3 starts with those people who have been living in shame and in darkness. And it says in verse 1, can we have, it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. When you are in distress, you are in shame. And it says, in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, the place where there was shame, the place where people didn't regard. That was what was going to happen. How? As a result of the birth of a child. God takes a postcard of shame and he turns it around and he makes it a postcard of redemption. That's what we see in the life of Bathsheba. And that's him says in the third verse, he says, Oh, come thou dayspring from on high and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. And he says what? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Because of this baby that has been born, death's dark shadows and the gloomy night have been dispersed. Amen. So we see the postcard of shame, but there's a postcard of glory. A postcard of glory. And the second time we see Bathsheba, she's no longer Bathsheba the helpless. She becomes Bathsheba the intercessor. And can I just say that when God's redemptive purposes are at work in our lives, it changes our trajectory so much that we no longer are defined by what we have gone through but by the new destiny and destination that God has for us. And maybe if you're going through something here today, can I tell you, like Tommy said to us last week, that your story now doesn't have to be where your story ends. 
because a child has been born who has borne the judgment on our behalf and has borne the judgment in our stead, we can now boldly lift up our heads and no longer have droopy shoulders because of this baby. So Bathsheba is no longer Bathsheba the helpless. She becomes Bathsheba the intercessor. And we see that in 1 Kings verses, chapters 1 to 2. And basically what's happened now is David has become an old man. He's about to die. In fact, he's so old that the passage says that when he's covered with a blanket, he can't get warm. He needs a human being to warm him. He needs hugs in the middle of the night to warm him. But again, just to show us that God can radically change anybody's story. David, who saw somebody from afar and wanted to sleep with her, now is having somebody literally in his bed in chapter 1 of 1 Kings, and he doesn't do anything to her. The passage tells us that. But that's not the point for today. So what happens at this point is that David, there have been several attempts on, on David's throne. David has been attacked by his son, Absalom. If you know the story, he's been attacked by one of the military forces, um, a guy named Shimei. There have been several attacks on Tuna. He sort of lasted them all. But now there is one more attack, this time by his son called Adonijah, his oldest surviving son. And the reason why this one is so significant is because not just that this guy is the oldest surviving son who, in other words, has a rightful claim to the throne, but this guy has now, like we have in Nigeria, we used to have back in the day in Nigeria, he has commanded the chief of army staff, Joab who is in charge of all the soldiers, and he has gotten the minister of religious affairs, a priest, Abiata, and he has them in his corner, and he says he has taken those guys away with some other people from the palace, and they have gone to have a party to celebrate him becoming king. And Bathsheba gets wind of that. And Bathsheba decides to approach the king, David, and to say, basically, David, this wasn't what we agreed. There was something else that we agree that we need to bring into force right now. So in verses 15 to 20 of 1 Kings, we're told, Bathsheba went to see David in the room, and she bowed down herself, prostrating before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Verse 18, but now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the kings on Abiathar, the priest, the Joab, and all of that. And verse 20 says, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. And the first thing we see in these verses is the request of Bathsheba, the intercessor. She goes to David, she bows herself to David, and she's basically saying to David that, David, this is what we agreed on. If I were Bathsheba, at this point, David actually owes her. He's put her through a lot of misery in her life. He's caused, he's caused her first child to be killed. And so at this point, this is Bathsheba's opportunity to cash out. This is her opportunity to say, basically, David, okay, now let's institute a law and make sure that everybody... At the time when you die, everybody begins to pay homage to me as the queen mother and to respect me. And I have taxes. I get all the taxes. of. She could, she could basically have just said anything. I want a property in Banana Island. Anything. <laughs> but of all the things Bathsheba asks, Bathsheba says, goes to meet David and she says, No, David, this isn't what we agreed. 
You said Solomon will be king. Make sure that that is what happens. Bathsheba doesn't go after the preservation of herself. She goes after the preservation of the kingdom. She goes basically and says, bring to pass what you have said. And Bathsheba shows us actually our need for all of us for an intercessor. I don't know why. The passage doesn't tell us what Solomon was doing. The passage doesn't tell us why Solomon couldn't come before the king. But the fact was Solomon could not come before the king. And he needed somebody in the form of Bathsheba to stand before the king in his stead to plead his case before the king. And Bathsheba becomes that person who stands before the king and says, bring to pass what you have said. And she's not just saying this out of her own imagination or she's not saying this out of, you know, sort of what she's thought in her head or what would be ideal. She's saying it on the basis of an agreement. She's saying, no, we had an agreement that you would bring Solomon to become king in your stead. Now, fulfill that agreement. And on one level, if we don't even go further, if we don't press any further, Bathsheba is already teaching us how to pray. When we come before God, we don't come before God on the basis of our own imaginations or on the basis of what we would like to happen. We come to God on the basis of an agreement of what he has written in his word. Bathsheba says, no, this was the agreement we had. Bring to pass what you have said about the kingdom. But it's not just the request of Bathsheba that we see. We also see her posture as she comes before the king. And so in verses 28 to 31, as the story unfolds, we see Bathsheba, when David eventually grants the request, Bathsheba comes before David and she's bowing down, prostrate before David. And if that doesn't astound you, it should. Because she's his wife. She doesn't need to. And yet, somehow, there is so much humility in Bathsheba, so much of a lowering of herself that she comes before David and she says, do this. And when he says he's going to do it, she goes back there again and she bows down and she humbles herself and lowers herself from who she actually is as the queen to take on the posture of a servant and a slave. And because of Bathsheba's intervention, because of Bathsheba's intercession, we are told Remember that the story all along has been about how will God establish the kingdom? How will God establish the kingdom, not just of David, but of David's son and David's descendants after him? And we are told in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 12, that because Bathsheba interceded, because Bathsheba pleaded the case of Solomon before David and for the kingdom, we are told that Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. Isn't that strange? That God has said he was already going to do it, and yet somehow there was still the need for an intercessor. There was still the need for an intercessor who was not just saying what they wanted to say, but on the basis of an agreement, who was not just taking on the position of a chief and royalty, but taking on the position of a servant, and says that because of what you have said, God, firmly establish your kingdom. But if you know the story well, actually, something happens and it seems as though the kingdom becomes unestablished. 
because Solomon hands over to his son Rehoboam and the son doesn't manage the kingdom well and the kingdom breaks apart and on and on the story goes until eventually there is no more kingdom, there is no more king. Until we get Matthew chapter 12 where there is this rabbi who is walking along in Jerusalem, in, in Judah and he's saying things about himself and he says in Matthew 12 verse 42, that a greater than Solomon is here. In other words, all the intercession of Bathsheba and all that Bathsheba was doing, pleading for the kingdom, was ultimately pointing towards not Solomon, but another king, a greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. That when Bathsheba comes before David and she's humbling herself and bowing down prostrate and not taking the form of royalty but taking on the form of a slave, that what Bathsheba actually does is Bathsheba is mirroring Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 we are told that Jesus is the one who even though he was God, he humbled himself and took on the form of a slave and was made in human likeness. That we have an intercessor who does not just stand high but comes down low to be with you and I. Not to seek his own purposes or his own agenda but to seek the advancement of that kingdom that God has promised. No wonder Hebrews then tells us that because Jesus Christ made that oath to be faithful to God, to be Serving God's purposes, God has now made him a high priest and the guarantor of a better covenant. And he says in verse 25 that Jesus Christ has now become our intercessor who lives forever to stand before God and intercedes for all those who God has given to him. Friends, Bathsheba's story ultimately points us to our need for Jesus. So I need for somebody who is both like us, but yet different from us. Bathsheba was like David in that they were both humans and they were both, he, she was his mother. But yet she was different from David in that she had access to the, to, to the king. Solomon, sorry. She had access to the king and Solomon didn't have access to the king. Jesus is both like us and yet different from us in that Jesus is fully God and yet he humbles himself and becomes one of us. Friends, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And we see that the postcard of shame becomes not just a postcard of shame redeemed, but a postcard of glory that God will fulfill all his purposes and not even our own sin, our own indifference, our own ignorance can stand in the way of that. He will bring to pass what he has already promised. But it's not just a postcard of glory in the past. It's a postcard of glory that yet awaits us in the future. You see, last week, Tommy told us that we are in between two Advents. There is the Advent of Christ who has already come, and that's what we are celebrating at Christmas here and now. But the Advent of what is already yet to come is also what we are celebrating in Christmas, that we look back and yet we look forward to what lies ahead of us. That because we have an intercessor who was born and has become one of us, 
and fulfilled his father's purposes in the past, he will yet fulfill his father's purposes in the future and we will be partakers of that glory that awaits us. If you're familiar with history, there is um, the term that has been used to describe what is now called the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, but was previously called the British Empire. It was a term called the empire where the sun never sets. And why was it described that way? It was because everywhere in the world at a particular point in time, there was always somebody awake in a particular place where the flag of Great, Great Britain was planted. The sun never set on the British Empire. It was that wide and that vast. And there was a lot of pride that welled up in people's hearts, knowing that they were part of a kingdom that didn't come to an end. Well, eventually the British Empire crumbled. Um, Nigeria is a product of that. But we still have an affinity, right, to Great Britain. And many of us, our friends and family, have already jackpot there. And some of us are hoping to jackpot there in 2023. But I remember before I ever visited Great Britain at all, my mother would, who had gone a couple of times, would often come back and she would bring back catalogs from, um, I think it was Asda and George's and Max and Spencer's and all these places. And you, Argos, all those, all those catalogs that they weren't using, they wanted to throw away. She was like, okay, just bring it for us. And we as kids would feed ourselves with this thing. Oh, this is what Great Britain looks like. This is what people wear. This is how people look. And we were familiarizing ourselves with that faraway place in the present. You see, that same reality can be ours as we think about what Christ has done on our behalf in being born for us. That he has become one of us. He has given us a deposit of himself and he promises us that there is yet a glory that awaits us that is yet coming because he's the lamb who was slain and who lives forever and he's coming again. So we get a picture of this in Revelation chapter 22 verse 1 to 5. We're going to read it together. What we see there is that whereas David's kingdom ended the kingdom of this king will never end because he is the one who lives forevermore revelation 22 verse 1 to 3 let's read together then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see that? Not only does the lamb reign, not only does the king of kings continue to reign, but we get to reign with him. 
And so Christmas is that assurance that God's kingdom is unfailing. Or maybe our elections may not turn out the way you want to in 2023. Maybe things may not go as well for you as you are hoping in 2023. Maybe that thing that you are, that you are struggling with may not end the way that you want it to end. But guess what? You are part of an unfailing kingdom. And so that Christmas hymn ends with this. And if you are able to sing, let's sing it together. It says... Oh, come thou key of David, come and open wide the heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on and close the listening to the gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.